You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews 11, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16, and we've been looking at the issue of faith as we've gone through Hebrews 11, uh, and we've been looking at it under the um, sort of pattern of what we talk about here at church of wanting to glorify and grow and give and so we've talked about faith that glorifies we've talked about faith that grows uh, growing the kingdom so today and actually next week it's going to kind of be a two-parter as we begin to wrap up chapter 11 and we're going to talk about a faith that gives Uh, but, but I want us to understand what we're talking about with these next two messages is that we have a faith in Christ that we then give in our lives. We, we live by faith. We make decisions by faith. We make choices by faith. We do these things by faith in that understanding that as we give out our faith, God is then going to give us a greater reward. So when we talk about faith that gives, it's really twofold. It's that we are giving of ourselves in faith and the various things that God asks us to do and and who he asks us to be. But we do that with an understanding that indeed God does have intention to give us a better reward because of that faith. We we saw that early on in Hebrews 11. I'm just going to read Hebrews 11.6 to you. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And we talked that week that God's already rewarded us greatly in Christ. He's given us his son. He's given us the gift of salvation. He gives us access to God through Jesus and on and on and on. But these are all earthly down payments of a greater reward to come. For those who have faith and for those who live by faith. So let's read Hebrews 11, 13 through 16 as we look at this this week. He writes, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, if they had been seeking, if they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This faith that gives a better reward is the faith of strangers and exiles. This is an interjection of emphasis here in this letter that the author of Hebrews does. And it's an interjection of emphasis pointing to the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You may say, well, why is Sarah not included in this? Well, I would say she needs to be included in it. But in a very patriarchal system of which this was written in, uh, the women didn't get much credit. But he's pointing to the faith of those who he's just immediately talked about, written about, spoken about from verses 8 and following. Hebrew, uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and yes, even Sarah. He's not mentioning here verses 13 through 16 and he says these all died in faith. I don't believe he's mentioning Abel or Enoch or Noah who he mentions earlier in chapter 11 for this reason. 
He's mentioning these individuals specifically, dying in faith, having not received the things promised. For Abel, for Enoch, for Noah, there was never a promise of land given. There was never a promise of a, this will be the place for you and your descendants. That promise first comes to Abram in Genesis 12. So although those people are to be commended in the first part of Hebrews for their faith, and they are commended in the first part of Hebrews for their faith, the interjection here by the author is dealing with these individuals of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I would say, yes, even Sarah. And he says of them, their faith uh, did not waver. He describes it in this way in verse 13. These all died in faith. It's essentially a, a phrase that means their, their faith stayed with them up until their very last gasp of air. To their very last breath, they held on to the faith that they had in God. But they held on to it even though they did not see, from an earthly perspective, the full nature or the full completion of God's promise. How, how do you do that? How do you die in faith? How do I die in faith? Meaning that you and I hold our faith up to the very last breath, up to the very last heartbeat, having not seen on earth maybe all of the promises of God that we thought we should have seen come to fruition. I believe there's two things we can draw from 11, 13 through 16. First of all, again, is this. This is the faith of strangers and exiles. Look again at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having, receiving, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Some of your translations may say foreigners, some may say nomads, some may say pilgrims. Regardless of the English translation, it's all the same. Individuals who were living in one area and they were not from that area. And so in that area they're living in, they're simply residing temporarily. They're simply residing as strangers, as sojourners, as someone who is living there for just a short time. Quite literally, the scripture is saying this, these persons of great faith believed this world was not their home. They had, they had ideas, they had dreams, they had faith of something that was better, and they acknowledged it. Uh, the King James, New King James says they confessed it. The New International Version says they admitted it. Again, it's all the same meaning. They had an open declaration that this was not their home. When you acknowledge, when you confess, when you admit that you're a stranger and an exile, it is the same thing as saying verbally, this is not my home. It is the same wording that Paul uses, for example, in Romans 10, 9 and 10, where he says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart upon Jesus, you will be saved. That, that word confess in Romans 10, 9 and 10 is the same word here, and it means to make a declaration. It doesn't mean to simply hold on to something internally. It means to publicly declare that, that truth that you have. And so when the scripture says that they acknowledged, they confessed, they admitted that they were strangers, pilgrims, exiles, they're literally saying this world is not their home. 
And notice what it says, how it describes it there at the end of verse 13, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Knowing what we know of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the travels they had, we might have expected the author of Hebrews to say, well, they were strangers and exiles in Canaan. Or they were strangers and exiles in Egypt. But he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in Hebrews, doesn't say that. He says they acknowledge they were strangers and exiles of the whole earth. Not just a specific region or a specific plot of land, but of this world. A.W. Tozer, in his commentary on Hebrews, says this, The Holy Spirit, who is the real author of this letter to the Hebrews, uses the terms pilgrims and strangers to remind these early Christians they were not yet at their final home. The message still reads the same today. The faith of Abraham, uh, Abraham, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob the faith that they had that, that uh, had them acknowledge they were strangers and exiles to this very world would be the faith that would prelude or preclude, if you will, the carrying on of that idea in the New Testament for those who are saved by Jesus. Let me read to you from Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Paul writes, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. He writes in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are of this earth. Peter, in his writings, in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, as he's encouraging the church to live out the, the calling that God has given them, says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which would be identified with the passions of this world, which wage war against your soul. And then finally, John, in his letter, in 1 John 5, gives us this beautiful, victorious picture 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The faith of strangers and exiles is the faith that says, this is not our home. This is not the ending reward for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you and I, when we are born again, we are born again into a new citizenship. A citizenship that goes above every citizenship of whatever country, region, locale you may live in. It does not mean you cannot love your city, state, and nation. It does not mean you cannot love the community around you. It does not mean you shouldn't work for the good of the city, state, and nation around you. I would suggest it means quite the opposite. That because you and I know that something better awaits, we should work all the more greater for that area. Because we understand that we are simply doing the work of the one who will return one day and complete it. We do not fall in love with this world. We do not fall in love with the systems of this world. And it's easy to do. And if it was not a danger for Christians... 
then there would not be so many warnings in Scripture about it. But there are. There are. In Matthew 6, when Jesus is teaching about prayer, and he's teaching about, teaching about praying in secret, he says, don't be like the hypocrites who stand on the corners and preach and preach loudly and preach very boisterously. And, and the implication there is that as they preach on the, or, or pray on the street corners, that everybody's seeing them and everybody's sort of commending them for what they're doing. And he makes this very, very grave statement in regards to those individuals. He says, they have received their reward. Meaning the, the adoration of men, the adoration of earthly people for what they're doing is all the adoration they're going to receive. All the reward they're going to have. Because we're not to be in love with this world and its systems. The faith that gives is a faith that is the faith of strangers and exiles. Secondly, from verses 14 through 16, it's the faith that seeks and desires. Read again for those three verses with me. For people who speak thus, meaning people who speak in this manner, that they acknowledge they're strangers and exiles. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. And if they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had, had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. It's that very interesting statement in verse 15 that really got to me this week. If they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Meaning for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, if they, if they were just earthly seeking a land to build homes on, to prosper, to make the name for themselves and make the name for all of their generations and all the descendants to follow, if that's simply what they were seeking, they would have had opportunity to go back. They had a homeland. They had a place. Abraham had a place where his people were residing, where his family was, where his roots were put down. And the author is making this statement, if they were merely seeking some place to live, they could have simply just turned around and gone home. But their vision of God's promise kept them going. Their faith in that God would deliver kept them moving. It did not turn them around. It did not cause them to look beyond or backwards. Lot's family learned that really quickly at Sodom and Gomorrah, didn't they? It's easy to look back and to find a way out. It's easy to say, oh, well, this is what I want, and it was back here, so I'm going to go back here. But understand that Abraham did not do that, and he did not do that because he trusted in God, and he had faith in God. And I would say to you, not only did he not do that because of that, he did that for Isaac and for Jacob and for all the descendants who would come. That he was not just seeking a place that he knew and was comfortable, he was seeking this promise of God for himself and for the generations that would follow. We talk often about the plans for the church. Chuck prayed today before the service and just asked again in his prayer that God would continue to show us as a church what we need to do for our community and, and how we need to engage in the mission. 
Next Sunday, I, I typically do a, a state of the church address. I'm actually going to talk to you more about our community around us next Sunday night than I am the state of the church. And it's going to be imperative for us moving forward, and not only for us moving forward, but for the generations to come moving forward, that we step out on faith. That we step in on a faith that trusts God. That we step in on a faith that acknowledges that he has a greater reward for us than anything we could muster up for ourselves. That we step in on a faith that says to, uh, the truth that this world is not our home. There's always an opportunity to go backwards. We need opportunities to move forward. We need to move opportunities to move forward in great faith. And he says this of them, again in verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land, they would have had opportunity to return. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Uh, don't, don't think here in terms of heaven as being clouds and angels with wings and harps and halos and those kinds of things. Understand there, here that, that he's using a specific terminology because he's talking about them leaving an earthly country and talking about them desiring a heavenly country. He's using that as a direct comparison. Heaven is talked about many things in Scripture. It's referred to as a city. It's referred to as a temple. It's referred to as the kingdom. It's referred to as an inheritance. Here he just simply says heavenly country because he's contrasting this idea of an earthly country with that which is eternal. And that is the point of this heavenly country. It's less about location and it's more about influence. For what will that heavenly country look like? Well, it'll be a place that is holy and pure. It'll be a place with no sin and no death. It'll be a place with no tears. It'll be a place with nothing to inhibit true fellowship with God. It'll be a place of pure worship and on and on and on and on. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were longing for that. They were longing for that. As much as they had faith in, as much as they believed, as much as they, they could set their minds on the, this promise of God that someday there would be an earthly place where their descendants would set up camp and begin to live, beyond that, they desired something even greater. And really what it's describing, really what they held in their minds as they thought and they, they, they would seek this and desire this, that it really was eternity. It was everything that exists past your last breath on earth. It was everything that exists the moment your body and my body starts to decompose. It is everything that God will do when Christ returns as the coming king and sets up his kingdom forever upon this earth. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, as Solomon writes, he says this, He, God, has put eternity into man's heart. You know of eternity. Mankind knows of eternity, and, and it is what they do with that eternity, and it is what they do with that belief about eternity that ultimately determines their eternity. And sadly, some get to a point where they just believe nothing matters, they're just going to cease to exist, that they just get one life and that's it, and on and on and on. 
for Abraham, for Isaac, for Jacob, I would say to you, for all who are now saved by faith in Christ, that eternity in our heart is growing. And that longing for that is growing. And what the promise of the scripture is here at the end of verse 16 is this. He says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Why, why that phrasing? God is not ashamed to be called their God. Well, why that phrasing? Because, again, as we talked about a little bit last week, if you know the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and really every great hero of the faith, their lives were not without fault. Their lives were not without missteps or mistakes. Their lives were not without moments where their great faith wavered. Sarah? Oh, she's, she's not my wife. She's my sister. And in spite of all that, he says, in spite of all that, because they died in their faith, meaning that eventually faith won out, meaning that eventually faith became the thing that carried them even to their last breath. In spite of all that, God is not ashamed of them, and he is, he's honored to be called their God. And not only that, Look again at what he says. He, prepared, he has prepared for them a city. I mean, I, I, just, I just know in my own life, and probably you do in your own life as well. There may have been times, say, for example, you said things to your kids, and now if you do this, then we're going to get to do this, and they didn't do this, and you go, well, we're not doing this. You, you were disobedient, so uh-uh. We're not, we're not going to Hoggies today, whatever the case may have been. And aren't you glad God doesn't do that with us? Whew. Aren't you glad that God doesn't look at us and all the times that our faith wavers and all the times that we sort of give up and all the times that we let other things intrude and, and, and get in the way? And that what the promise of Scripture is, not that he sees that and goes, well, I'm done with them. But it says he's not ashamed to be called their God. And he prepares what is yet to come still. Isn't that the real takeaway from all of this in Hebrews 11? Where my faith and your faith resides. See, there's a common misconception in our world that says, all you need is great faith. doesn't matter what it's in. You just need great faith. Well, I would submit to you that if you were to watch me today um, saw through two or three of these legs almost all the way to the end where they were just barely hanging on, and then I told you if you have great faith, that chair will support you, my guess is none of you would take that bait. But don't you have great faith in the chair? The world says, just have great faith. It'll, it'll come to you. The issue is not just whether or not you and I can muster up great faith. The issue is who we're mustering up the great faith in. And the story of Hebrews 11 from start to finish is the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that God and God alone is the object of our great faith. God who is eternal has let man know of eternity. And God who is eternal has made a way for us to live as strangers and exiles here while we seek and desire something greater.
I'll just close with this. We can be so easily deceived and distracted and moved away from the mission of God in our lives, both individually and corporately. There's so much that you and I can, can justify in our lives. Well, you know, I, there was that one time that I asked God to, to do something and he didn't do it. And, or there was that one time that, that we, we thought we were going to do this, but we didn't. Or, well, I, 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 know, I know God works through these ways, but I really think through these other ways, these other systems, God will do a better job if we just let him. There's no other object other than God for our faith. It's a faith that's been proven through Jesus Christ. It's a faith that's been demonstrated through Jesus Christ. It's the eternal faith that lives and dwells within us in the Holy Spirit of God who is in those who believe. And it is only that faith where we acknowledge that we're just passing through. We're just passing through. This is not our home. This is not the end. This is not the reward. And understand it is that faith that acknowledges that and that faith that seeks and desires something greater, more so than anything you and I could seek and desire on this earth. It is that faith that moves God to work. It is that faith that moves God to say, I'm not ashamed to be called your God. It is that faith that moves God to continue to prepare a reward for you that is greater than anything you could ever imagine earthly. Eternity is written upon your heart. Is it the greatest thing that's upon your heart? Is the longing and the desiring for the better country, the heavenly country, the one thing that stems your decisions and my decisions and how we act and interact and react, may it be so for the glory of his name. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.